0: Seated, as you're seated, turn in your copy of God's Word to uh, the book of Luke. Luke chapter 18 is going to be our focus today. If you need a Bible, we do have Bibles in the foyer. Uh, they're available for you to grab on your way in. Grab right now. Keep if you need one, um, because we come to the text today. We come, we study it. We look at it. We, you know, that's why we sit and we read it when we begin, because. We not only want to study it, but we want God's Word to study us. And, you know, as God examines our hearts and he shows us uh, ways that we would grow in Christ, uh, things we need to turn away from, things we need to turn towards. And um, over the last few weeks, we've been focusing on the, the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, In Galatians chapter five, we read a list of nine qualities that God is developing, cultivating in his people as they they come to him by faith. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And today we hit our sixth one of those, which is the fruit of goodness. And we'll see that being alluded to in our passage today in Luke chapter 18. As uh, we know, this is the story of the rich ruler or the rich young ruler. And uh, we see of Jesus's interaction with him, which is a powerful pointer toward us to God's call to us to be good as well. So let's look at this, uh, Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he becomes sad, said, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, what is impossible with man is possible with God. This is God's word. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we do come to this, we ask that you would search us, that you would examine us, you would lead us, that you would show us, Father, those places we fall short, the sin that we have in our lives, but Father, we ask you to lead us in the everlasting way. Lead us according to your word. Father, reveal to us what your plans and purposes are for us as your workmanship, God, that you would receive honor and glory. We ask, for Lord, that you send your Holy Spirit upon us as we look in this word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have you ever asked a question that you later regretted asking? Some of you thought it was a good idea to ask, but uh, later it uh, didn't work out. You know, maybe you'd say, well, is there anything that I could fix in my life? And then you didn't know the answer that you were gonna get from that person and all that it was gonna cost you. Or maybe you said, well, how does this outfit look on me? And then you got, you know, some response which you weren't quite ready for. Um, You regretted asking. Maybe you asked for permission to do something. You were planning to do it anyway, but you thought, well, out of respect, I'll go and ask for uh, permission to do that. And then somebody said no. Or maybe as a pastor, you know, I'd say, you know, what did you really think of my sermon? And then you can hear things when you come home um, about how that went. Well, if you're gonna ask a question, uh, you wanna be ready for the answer, whatever that question is. And in today's passage, as we just read, we see a wealthy Jewish leader asking Jesus a very good question, but it doesn't go the way that the ruler expects it to go, or even wants it to go. It's really because he doesn't know what he's asking, and he's not ready to act on the thing that he learns right? The the key word we're going to focus on today is the word good. And we see that in verse 18 and 19, because a lot hinges on the ruler's use of the word good inside the passage. And many of us are like this man, uh, in that we think we know what goodness is. Uh, But as we read his story, we see the surprise that he was in for as he asked this question. And as we look to this passage, we think about Maybe our own interactions we might have with Jesus or even goodness, we might be surprised as well. Uh, This man was, you know, this man thinks he knows what a good person is, but he doesn't quite uh, realize just how good of a person he's standing in in front of. All right, so what we're gonna do is we're gonna look at this passage, look at it in terms of the spiritual fruit of goodness, but first let's look at the passage itself. Uh, The first thing we wanna see is an outline of the passage is this man's misplaced confidence, misplaced confidence. Verse 18, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now we're gonna notice a couple things in this. First, we notice the way that he, he addresses and identifies Jesus. And the second thing we notice in this is the question that he asks himself. Um, If you're going to ask somebody a question and you really want an answer, you want to go to somebody who knows what that answer is going to be, right? I mean, every year, 20 million Americans, they go to college, uh, so they can talk to a professor or a doctor, somebody who's established themselves in the profession um, in order to know this skill or this uh, bit of knowledge that they want to know. So when this man, he goes to Jesus, he goes to him um, as an expert. And you know he has a very important question. And the question is, is how do I have eternal life? That's a really important question. He wants to live forever. Um, he wants to know that he is pleasing God now, and that's going to go on beyond this life. He wants to know that he's going to go to heaven and not to hell. And, you know, who can blame him for asking that question? It's a very good question. In fact, I wish that more people would ask that question now, right? And getting an answer to that instead of being separated from God for now and for all eternity. You know, so it's a very good question that he asked at the beginning. There's also an assumption that he has inside of the question. The assumption is that in order to go to heaven, that he must be good enough to go there. He makes the the same assumption that the vast amount of people in this world makes is that if our good deeds outweigh our bad deeds, well, then he's gonna go to heaven, right? Uh, If just he does enough of those good things, that will ensure him his place there. Now verse 23 tells us something about this man. It says that he was a very rich man. Uh, We get the sense that he's already accomplished a lot in his life. He was a local leader within the community, maybe in the Jewish synagogue or some of the local politics. He he wasn't worried about food or making ends meet. He had the time to be attentive to uh, life after this world. And just like he worked hard, have these earthly riches and this earthly power, uh, he wants to be sure that he has uh, done enough work to enter into heavenly riches, right? And so now he turns to an expert to ask, to tell him how he can get there. Now by this time in his ministry, Jesus was very popular. Uh, he had performed many miracles. He had healed the sick, he'd, he'd healed the lame, he'd, he'd even raised the dead, he'd, he'd, he'd fed the poor. His teaching was uh, well known throughout the area. And so this man reasons that this man must be good. Anybody who can do those kind of miracles must be good. Anybody who is drawing that crowd around him with the teaching that he had must be good. I mean, God has blessed him in the ability to do these things, right? You know, so he must be good. He's been obviously blessed by God, and so he calls Jesus good teacher. And then in verse verse 19, Jesus answers him. He said to him, why do you call me good? no one is good except God alone. And it's an interesting response. Uh, And in it, we can draw out a few important things to know about Jesus and about what he believed, what he taught, what the Bible teaches. First thing we are reminded of is that there is no, that no human person is inherently good. No human person is good. In Jesus, in, in this passage, Jesus affirms what the rest of the Bible teaches, passages like Romans 3, 12, that everyone has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Look at what Romans three twelve says. It says, all have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so the Bible in looking at um, humanity, looking at every person, rec- you know, uses some very absolute terms here, doesn't it? All have turned aside. No one does good. All are tainted with sin all have been affected by sin. And even those uh, things that we might see uh, as the best human works and and, and the most good things we see, even those are tainted with selfishness and human sin. Sin defiles us. Sin leaves us unacceptable to God. Sin is rebellion against God. It is an act of treason. Sin is using God's gifts contrary to the purposes of God. And so the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Sin has permanently and irreversibly damaged us that we cannot in ourselves do good. And so this ruler is not going to be able to be good enough and he needs to see it. He's already sinned. He's already broken God's commands. And if he, if he thinks Jesus's goodness just came to him as a matter of human accomplishment or human attainment, then he completely misses the point of who Jesus is and why he came. So an important reminder to us that Jesus did not come to bring a a moral improvement plan into our world. This passage destroys that notion that Jesus is just a human example that we need to follow. Jesus wanted to destroy the notion that if just you do enough good things, then you're gonna be okay. Our situation is much much worse than that. We can't be good. Sin has already affected us. Sin has already defiled us. Now the second thing that Jesus shows, even if he does it somewhat indirectly, is that he is God. Now when the man calls Jesus good teacher, uh, you know, he is speaking of Jesus as an ordinary human person who has somehow managed to attain a life of extraordinary goodness. Right? He sees something special in Jesus. But when Jesus says no one is good but God alone, he is pointing out that that goodness that he might see in him is not a, simply a matter of human achievement to be gained by diligent effort. And if that's what the man would come away from this encounter with Jesus with, he, he would have missed the reason that Jesus came into the world. Now that sin has come into the world, only God is unstained. And Jesus is clear about that. Only God is good. And if we want to be good, that goodness needs to come from God. It doesn't come from ourselves. And certainly, by common grace, people do good things. I mean, that's right. But, uh, you know, at least outwardly. That's where we even see Romans 3.12, other things. Yeah, I think uh, Isaiah 66, one of the verses in Isaiah 66, it says, you know, that, that even our, our, our best deeds are filthy rags they have been there, even tainted by sin, selfish and sinful reasons. So if we want to be good, it needs to come from God. And, and this man will not have it if he tries to get it only his own efforts. But the goodness that the man sees in Jesus is genuinely there. It is really there. Jesus is not saying he's bad. He does not say he is not good. But if the man sees true goodness in Jesus, he needs to see that that goodness is God's goodness that's in him. Jesus is God. The, the power, that moral perfection, that righteousness, that all comes from Jesus being the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God who has come in the flesh. And so this man, as he asks this question, it's, it's a good question, but he overestimates his own ability to be good. He underestimates The goodness of Jesus as he's right before him. And it's this sort of assumptions that go in that leave us in our sin, lead us separated from eternal life. All right, and that leads to the second point because Jesus gives him a well placed challenge uh, starting in verse 20. Now, in verse 20, Jesus sets out the standard of good. The moral law of God. He's going to use some of the Ten Commandments here. Verse 20, you know the commandments. Jesus says, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And then the man replies in verse 21 then, all these I have kept from my youth. And so this man thinks that he has lived a pretty good life. He just wants to make sure he gets the rest of the way to heaven. It's like he's building a bridge across a lake, a river or something, and and he's built 90% of that bridge. He just needs to get the rest of the 10% to get over there. He just thinks, you know, just give me the right materials, and I'll be there. Now, it's important as we look at that to see what Jesus says and what he doesn't say. Sometimes the answer that we're looking for is in what people don't say, right? Um... Again, he's using the Ten Commandments, but it's noteworthy he uses only five of them. And if we're to list them, in, he, he doesn't do them in order, but if I would list them in order, he's he the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, the eighth, and the ninth. So five through nine. Those are the ones that he uses as he talks to this man about the, the moral standards of God and moral standards of goodness, really. And the man comes out and says, yeah, I, I, I did all those things. Jesus knew the ruler would say that. And if you ask most people, if they're good people, uh, most of them are going to say, well, you know, I obey the law. I haven't killed anyone. I've cheated. I've not cheated on my wife. I, I don't steal. I usually tell the truth. Yeah, if you put me on a scale of goodness from one to ten, I think I'm at least a six, probably a seven or eight in the world that is, that, that is out there. Right? Now, this whole... Uh, thinking that we're better than average on this goodness scale is, is one of the big problems that we have in seeing eternal life. We won't see it if we're lost in our self-righteousness. We won't see it if we think that we are good. Remember, Romans five or 3.12 says no one is good. Now there are five commandments, though, that Jesus doesn't mention. And you know why he doesn't mention those? Because he's gonna deal with all five of them in one question in verse 22, in making one single demand on this person's life. Verse 22, he says this. He says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. All right, so that deals with the other five of the 10 questions. Let's deal with one of them, the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment is you shall not covet. You notice Jesus doesn't ask that in, uh, in verse 20 but he addresses it indirectly in this commandment Um, because it's it's confronting this man's covetous heart. Will the man trust in his riches? Will he trust in his wealth? Or will he trust in God? Covetousness, it uh, reveals our love of money. It reveals our our trust in money. A covetous heart uh, rejoices, um, well, it rejects the idea of living with less. It only rejoices in having more. A covetous heart is discontent with what it has. And so this ruler does not want to have less possessions, but you see, in fact, he wants more, right? He wants to add, his, he wants to, add to his accomplishments by ensuring that he goes to heaven also, and he has those blessings and riches there. But the law of God is given to us to reveal sin in our lives, Not to show how good we are. If we look at Romans 3, 19 to 20, it reminds us the law was added so that that sin might increase. So we might understand the sin that is in our lives. And if you are using God's law to justify yourself as, as this man did, here you're missing the point of God's law. And when we come to verse 22, we realize it takes one question, one good life challenging question to really show how far we fall short of God's standard. God's law shows us our need of Jesus. But God's love is part of this, and Jesus' love for this man is here too. Jesus is doing more than just confronting this man, he is giving this man you know, a genuine chance for eternal life. But he has to see what's missing. And that leads to our third point about the powerful idol in his heart. Okay, so I addressed the 10th commandment, now what about the other four commandments? And the other four commandments he's missing are first commandments one through four. Right, And those specifically deal with worship of God. It's, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make any false images. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You shall honor honor the Sabbath day. In other words, the questions that Jesus doesn't ask is the matters that are dealing with the worship of his heart. But again, in verse 22, Jesus is challenging the very thing that he worships, the very thing he trusts, the very thing that he sends gives him security and hope and and life in this world, and that's his money. We see in verse 23 that uh, when he heard these things, the man, it says, the man became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And so here, Jesus sets before him to do something good, something really good, but his love of money gets in the way he could have given to the poor he had a lot to give helping others and in in setting aside those things he could have followed Jesus but instead he lives leaves dejected and sad still controlled by his love of money things could have been different but he chose the status quo he chose his trust of the world and so in verse 24 Jesus addresses the power of idols power of any idol in our life, especially money, Jesus says, uh, Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I mean, there is something about money that keeps many from seeing their need of God. That's Jesus' point here. If we have a lot of it, we tend to think that we've accomplished our own success, that we can accomplish more of it, and that we can do anything, maybe even the impossible. Instead of trusting in God, it is easy to trust ourselves and our own ability to be good and money to protect us. And Jesus' disciples get concerned in hearing this. Usually, um, many, many cultures, it's the rich of the people who have been blessed by God. Maybe we're even inclined to believe that. They're the ones who are are good enough to get that blessing from God. They're the ones who are closer to heaven. They're the ones who ultimately deserve it, right? If the rich can't be saved, what chance does the ordinary person have? What chance does the poor person have? Who can be good enough for heaven? And That's why they ask in verse 26, who then can be saved? And Jesus says, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Now, what was this man's problem? Was this ruler's problem? Is he thought that he could do the impossible, but he couldn't? Only God can do that impossible thing. Only God can save him. Only God can save him from his sin. And the disciples needed to see that. They needed to see that God is the one who forgives sins. But it's not a matter of human achievement. It's not a matter of just being good enough and doing enough. But it's a call out to God our good God, to have mercy on us and to forgive us, and to forgive us for Christ's sake. All right, so that's our passage, and this this sense of this man's interaction with Jesus coming out of the first question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus' response, why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. What I want to do is then, let's look at that. Let's take that in this passage and look at the spiritual fruit of goodness and this call that God has for us to grow in this and the thing he wants to develop in us and develop goodness. The first thing I wanna talk about is what goodness is. And when we talk about good people in this world, we, you know, we do talk about good people. It's, it's a pretty common expression, right? But we usually talk about two qualities. One of those qualities is a person who lives an upright and a moral life. We, we say they're good because they measure up to some standard. Um, God's standard they don 't take advantage of God they don't take advantage of other people for their own selfish people for their own selfish purpose but there's another way that we talk about good people and we see um, we see good people as those who work to improve the lives of others and I think that 's what really dominates the description of goodness as we see in this passage, but as we also see really through the rest of the Bible. You know, when God really is talking about being good, doing good, and goodness, is that willingness to engage in the needs of others. And remember, this man calls Jesus the good teacher, right? He, Jesus gives a list of good qualities, but then he gives one instruction, one command, one single act of goodness for him to follow, selling his possessions and giving to the poor. That's, that's a good action. And so you can see God's heart for goodness in the demand that Jesus makes on this man to actively work for the benefit of those around him. And while God may not demand uh, each of us to sell everything we have, he does command us to do good. Now, last week we spoke about kindness. And this week we're talking about goodness. And I wondered as I was preparing for this, is it, are these really even two sermons or are they kind of the same thing? In fact, the book that I'm using, Jerry Bridge's book, on um, The Fruitful Life, um, he uses a, one chapter. So it's not even two chapters, it's one chapter. And I thought, well, can I really do two chapters? And then I, you know, I was looking at the words that were used here and, and the different, you know, the, the word for kindness and the word for goodness in the Bible. They are, they are different words. Uh, they're used in different settings, different contexts. And, and even that slight difference can show us something really important that we need to see in our lives. Kindness grows out of a sense of tenderheartedness goes out of forgiveness for others. You know, it's that person who's in front of us that we want to do something kind for. Um, and, and, you know, maybe in some ways not to retaliate or, 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 or get back against. It could be a gracious response and a desire to help a person in need. But, you know, goodness carries that sense of moral obligation. Goodness carries that sense where we are responding to the law of God. Goodness carries that sense that we recognize the needs of our mankind, the fellow mankind, the people that are around us, and we do things in obedience to Him. Um, you know, God's system of justice is for God's people to, to voluntarily give from their excess to those who have less resources, to help build them up. And so, goodness is being morally upright, and that is true, the first definition, but it's not enough for a person to observe all the right rules. We see that in the rich ruler here. Goodness is taking all that law of God and all the resources that we've been given and using it to benefit others. So I, there's a passage I keep coming back to week after week in my study through the, um, fruit of the Spirit. And it's 1 John three sixteen. And it's just a reminder that we can't think that we're in God's love if we do not do good to the people around us. I Meaning God's economy, uh, you know, generosity with others, it's a matter of obedience to God, justice before God. If we're gonna, you know, do justly is a recognition that there's a call to do good and to share. Our failure to do so is an evidence of unbelief. First John three, sixteen says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love? abide in him one thing we're reminded of as we get to this um this fruit of goodness is a reminder that we do not own you know the things that are in our position not ultimately own you know these are things that God owns uh Psalm 24 one says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The things that he gives us are, are things that ultimately he created, he owns, and he gives it to us to steward, to care for, and to use ultimately for his purposes. Right? And so that money in your bank account, you know, that's God's. He expects you to use it for good, to steward it for good purposes. You know that, that number in your retirement account, that's not just for you, but for you to do good to others. The, biz, the business you have, the real estate you have, the time, the skill, all those things, God gives you to steward well, being attentive to the needs of others. Even the gifts that you have, I was reading a story this week about a man and his hobby was uh, like deep sea diving or scuba diving. And one thing he did just as a hobby was he would go into lakes, just different lakes throughout the country and his region. And, and he would look for things that were on the bottom of the lake. And he would, um, you know, maybe something that somebody dropped down there. And he'd pick it up and he'd put it on the internet to, to, uh, so that the owner could know that he found it and maybe reclaim it if they lost it in that lake. Well, the, the story was about a man who lost his prosthetic leg in this lake, and he'd just been fishing or kayaking, put his leg over, and bop, his leg fell off and went all the way to the bottom. And then um, later on, you know, he, his friends uh, reached out to him and said, hey, you know, I saw this website and had this prosthetic leg on it that they found at the bottom of the lake. Is that your leg? Is, is that your leg? And man, he, he reached out, he claimed it from the scuba diver, uh, and what did he say in the end? He said, I was so uplifted to know that good people still exist in the world. You know, and so this is a person who has a, uh, a repeated effort to do a principled action to help people. And if, isn't that often what goodness is? It's um, a knowledge that we can help people, even if we don't see them right in front of us, but to do something good for others. So we talk then about goodness. Ultimately, we come back to God. We talk about how he is morally true. But yet, even though he is, he is morally perfect, he, he sets his goodness in the way he provides for his people. I love Psalm 34, 8 and 9, because it shows us. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. He is good, right? Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Right, we see the goodness of the Lord in the provision of God, the provision for the needs of others as as stewards of God's resources in obedience to his commands. All right, so that's a little bit on what goodness is. Let's look at the source of goodness. That's because when the the rich young ruler comes to jesus he comes as a source of goodness but he never really plugs himself into that source he he fails to really see who he's talking to he had the wrong motive of wanting to prove himself instead of finding grace he had the wrong question in asking how he could inherit eternal life instead of seeing how he could be forgiven and to find grace he had the wrong response by walking away instead of obeying Instead of saying this, instead of saying, Lord, have mercy on me, or, or Lord, increase my faith, uh, he, he did none of those. He just walked away sad. But Jesus was right there. You know, this good teacher, the one who obeyed all of God's commandments, following all of God's law, and he walks away from the source of goodness itself. And he really had no sense of what Jesus was, how good he really was, and how much, how, how much good he was really going to do. Jesus was good in that he gave his life, that we might have life. He let his body be broken. He let his blood be shed to forgive sins. Even his body and blood were given for others. Second Corinthians 8, verses 8 and 9 talk about Jesus leaving heaven. The rich is the wealth of heaven to come to be among us, that we would be made spiritually rich. His death on the cross, it was to pay the penalty of sin. And so through faith in him, what does he give to us? But he gives us his righteousness, makes us acceptable to God. He, he takes what we have, our sin, taking it on to himself, and his righteousness, he gives it to us. He provides. He's good. We have sin, and we need God to make us good, to forgive our sins, to make us morally upright, and to generate goodness in us. But the rich young ruler, he would not let God make him truly good. He didn't confess his sin. He trusted in his idols. But that idol would never make him good. We need to be able to say to God that being good is so hard. That we struggle with the idols of our heart. That we don't want to do the things that God says we should do for others. But ask him to free us from our sin. The only thing that will free us from an idol like money is to know a security that is greater than that idol. To have a security that's greater than that money. And that's what we find through faith in Jesus. He is good. He's provided everything that we need. And he will never let us go. And that's a reason we can do good to others. If you look at John chapter 10, John chapter 10, Jesus speaks about his own goodness there. Went the wrong way. John chapter 10, starting in verse 11, he says this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And if you jump down to verse uh, 27, he says, talking about him being a shepherd, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Right, He is a God. He, he is sh- the shepherd who protects. That is part of how he is a good shepherd. No one can take his sheep from his hand. And so what does it take to overcome an idol like this rich ruler has here is to know the security that is in Jesus Christ. You know, is that to love this money, to fall back on security, and to think that this is what's going to give my life meaning. This is what's going to make me acceptable. This is what's going to give me joy. He's missing the whole point, and he has a good shepherd who, who will never let him go. And the security that he has in Christ is much greater. The security he could have in Christ is much greater than any security that his money would ever give. Jesus gives something that no other idol could give. He has forgiveness of sin, reconciliation from God, eternal life, spiritual power, spiritual strength. This is how God is good to his people. I'm reminded of Psalm 23, 6, which says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. What is the greatest good? But it's to be in God's house. is to be in the presence of God and to be with him. God has been so good to us. And that goodness is to spill out in our own growth in goodness. And that leads us into our last point, that we are created and we are redeemed for good works. We shouldn't let the fate of this rich young ruler discourage us from being good. But we have to realize that the idols of our heart will keep us from doing the things that God has for us. We have to address them. We have to address them if we wanna do good. And be good for God's sake. Now, your idol may not be money. I mean, it could be control. It could be anger. It could be the acceptance of others or something else. But that idol is keeping you from being really good. And that's what you need to get rid of. Now, you are created for good works. We see this in the place of Adam and Eve in the garden. And, and the, the creation mandates would follow ever since then. A, a call to work, to take dominion, to cultivate, to, to, to grow. And basically the idea is use the resources that God gives you for the benefit of others. But that's where we've fallen short of God's requirement. You know, we've sinned, we've fallen short of that. But God has, in Jesus Christ, redeemed us and he's redeemed us for good works. And we see this over and over in the Bible, especially in Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10 says this, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now that we're redeemed, we glorify God by our good works. We're going back to those things we were created to do, back to those things that sin kept us from. We're doing back to those things that he would be glorified and that others would be helped. And as Matthew 5, 16 says, we show how good he is and we show how good the world could be if good works took their place in the world. Jesus says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? Called to good works to show his glory. If you look in the bulletin, you'll see a whole list of passages which talk about good works. I encourage you to look them up. I don't have time today to look at them all, but I want to highlight one in Hebrews 10, 24 and 25. Hebrews chapter 10, 24, and 25. That's because as we look at this, we're reminded that even as we get together as a church, we stir up one another to good works. That's because we know that apart from others, we are less inclined to do good works. I was reading a story just this morning, and it was a headline that was talking about, oh, um, Yeah. I was talking about something, I think it was called bed rot. But the idea was that when we have a really bad day, a lot of people are more and more tempted to go lay in bed all day and to watch, scroll through their phone all day and just take a day totally away from others. You know, been a hard day. We want to relax and rest and get away from people. And we just want to just cover up and, and, and hide from the world. You know, but we recognize as we do that, none of that is helping anybody else. We're there, and there are still needs in the world, but it's coming together. It's being in a place where there's hope. It's being in a place where we see the needs of others. We're encouraging one of another to get out and to be involved with it. That gets us out of ourselves. That gets us out of our, our troubles. That gets us out of our struggles and to see the needs in the world and to see that God has created us to engage them and to address them. Hebrews ten twenty four says, And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some, but to encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching i mean i'm excited to be part of of this church and part of of christ 's body you know. Next week, we're going to commission our short-term trips. We're going to see trips going to, to uh, West Virginia to go do some building projects in a very poor community. We'll see another team going to Peru um, to help another uh, community up there that has, has uh, significant needs, spiritual as well as physical. And you know, so both these teams, an opportunity to go to do good and to do good in Christ's name and for his glory. You know, inside the body of Christ, the number of things that happen that I hear about through the weeks and years are just so encouraging. People caring for one another, coming alongside to help one another in our trials, maybe providing a meal, maybe coming alongside to pray, maybe more significant things than that. You know, helping pay bills and and to um, you know work through very, very difficult things of life. Or maybe it's in outreach ministries like ESOL or... The Choices Pregnancy Center with uh, unplanned pregnancies or in work against human trafficking, helping in foster adoption. You know, these are all places that we, as we talk about, we're reminded, oh, wow, look at the things that are going on in the world. There's needs that God has places here that we can address, so we can, we can do something about. The church is God's powerhouse for doing something good and sending out others to do good. But if you're not part of a church, you know, sometimes we just get so wrapped up in what's happening inside of our own lives. We fail to see, you know, these other things that are going on in the world. And we don't jump in when there's an opportunity to go do something. We can even idealize what it means to help others and just thinking, thinking about helping others instead of actually going and doing it. It's not the body of Christ. Not only do we talk about it, but we go do it and we go do it together. There's some work. There's setting some things aside. But it's something that we do. We do it together. Encouraging one another, and and part of this is doing together. It's fun to do these things together. It's enjoyable to do these things together. And the Lord has made it that way, you know, to keep us at at, at it. So what do we do? Well, look at your time, look at your money. Are you doing good for others? You know, what is it that makes doing good so hard? It's the cost of it. You know, we see the cost in Jesus' life, the price that he paid for good in our lives. And for us, the real cost of, of doing good is going to first be our own sin. It's going to be our own greed. It's going to be our own selfish ambitions. It's going to be our own um, discontent, our anger, our lust, our fears. But we have a command to do good. We have a command to work through those things. Now, I don't know what it means for you. I mean, for the rich young ruler, he had to sell everything. It be different for you. The command to solve everything was specific to him. But we must not think that Jesus' demands for us will be easier. What would you sell, give up, or sacrifice for the good of others? Your time? Time with people who are experiencing difficulties? Your money? To give to those who are in need? Maybe you have two competing ambitions in your life. You know, one is for leisure and comfort, the other is actually would do good for some people in our world. Might pay less or be, or, uh, or be harder to go and to help others, but what would Jesus' words here say to you about helping in that way? Or how about giving up your anger, your resentments, your refusal to forgive? And here's a big question, if Jesus did come to you and say, sell everything and come follow me, what would you do? I hope we all would, that all of us who call ourselves true followers of Christ would do what he asked, whatever it takes. But here's how it works out for us this week, that if we can do some good, something that is within our awareness, something that is within our power, we should do it. And that's our assignment. Look for, look for one way that you can do good. God has done us the greatest good in Christ, and we want nothing to get in the way of enjoying his good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. You have sent your Son as the Good Shepherd. Father, when we see his goodness, Father, we realize how much we need him to make us good. Lord, as we come to you in prayer, help us not to retreat back to our own false sense of goodness. Help us not retreat from the good that we can do out of fear. Father, but help us to draw our goodness from you. Father, there is a lot of suffering in the world. Father, we are surrounded with people that we can help, even if we can just help a little bit. Father, help us to see those and make us good, to stretch us, Father, as, as, um, as Christ was stretched. Father, and as you do, we ask that you give us the grace to do what you call us to do, Father. Give us the grace that we would find joy in all that's there. Help us to walk in the good works you prepared for us. We ask you these things in Jesus' name, amen.